Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. We're going to be doing a Bible study, kind of a bit of a hard left turn here. But if you do need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, There's an usher around the room. I'd love to get you a Bible into your hand. Um, We have been moving very quickly through this last half of Luke and um, asking this big question, what does it mean for us to become more like Jesus? Uh, Since Easter, we've looked at values like radical hospitality, like creating space around the table for people to invite them to the table. We've looked at what does it look like to to be the kind of people that leave the 99 to go after the one, to have that father's heart always searching the horizon. Um, And then Weston did a great job last week asking this question, what does it look like to live an undivided life? Becoming like Jesus means setting Jesus's goals and agenda in front of any other, even in the face of like really good things, like all the things like that compete for our attention, like money and sports and, and jobs and living the dream. Today's passage continues with that idea, looking at Luke 17. By confronting and challenging us with an everyday experience that has the potential to divide our hearts and our communities more than almost any other thing, the problem of unforgiveness. So if you're there, Luke 17, go ahead and stand up to your feet. I'm going to read verses one through six over us. Luke 17, one through six says this. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must Forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea and it will obey you. Lord, we, we come to you today around a difficult teaching, around a difficult passage. And I just pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to receive this word, that you would like soften the soil of our hearts so that that seed might be planted deep and, and, and make great roots and grow and produce fruit. 
we acknowledge this is, a, this is a difficult thing for us as humans. And we need your Holy Spirit to, to help us receive and be changed by your living word today. So teach us. Teach us, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, that ancient prayer. Come and, and, and open up our, the eyes of our heart. We want to see you. Help us to receive your word. In your name we pray, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. As Weston mentioned last week, Jesus is talking with his disciples. Uh, the religious leaders, they might have still been there, kind of hovering around, listening into the dialogue, but, but we know that at the very least, Jesus is intending his teaching to shape and form those who have said yes. Those that have said, I'm in Jesus I want to become like you. And this is one of those moments, one of those kind of really cool moments where we as disciples get to listen in 2,000 years later as Jesus literally forms his followers. And, and we get to ask ourselves the question, what does it look like for us to learn as his disciples? So let's get to work. Luke 16, the previous chapter, Jesus had driven home the idea that you, you can't serve two masters. You, you can't serve both God and money. Weston mentioned that becoming like Jesus requires this undivided heart, and we have to have correct priorities. Uh, Jesus calls us to have the same kind of undivided heart that his father has, and, and places and people and all that stuff is so much more important than stuff and money. In many ways, the last few chapters of Luke Really, they could be summarized with this idea of living undivided, living a life that is focused on Jesus, focused by Jesus around his purposes and for his interests, which is why, though it might feel like a bit of a left turn with this passage, today's passage actually carries on where Jesus left off. He knows that there are few things in our life that divide our hearts more and unforgiveness. Few things can fracture our insides quicker than unforgiveness. I remember a number of years back, Brittany and I were actually uh, leading another ministry, and one of the staff members, a friend of mine who I had hired, made some really poor choices and uh, ended up being let go. <clears throat> In that season, a bunch of very hurtful and untrue things were said about the ministry and about us, it was a brutal season. Um, but we tried to honor through the process. We, we responded kindly, and, but ultimately we had to entrust our reputation and what people thought about us and what was being said about us behind our back. We had to entrust all of that to Jesus and move forward. Um, we forgave. And then we tried to forget, right? That's how it goes, right? You forgive and then you forget. But if I'm honest, the words, they like, they like plagued my thought life. A couple of years on, really a few years on, I remember we were, we'd moved back here to Portland uh, and I, I think I was on the other side of town and I was like, ah, about a 30 minute drive. You know what I really need? It's going to be great. I'm not going to listen to any podcasts. I'm not going to listen to any music. I'm just going to spend 30 minutes just sitting in Jesus's presence and having a conversation with Jesus. You know, the next memory that I literally have is me sitting in my driveway, 
gripping, clenching the steering wheel like white knuckled, replaying the imaginary verbal lashing that I should have given that old staff member. Anybody out there? Anybody connect with that? What I should have said. I had no recollection of how I actually got home. I was totally an unsafe driver. I don't know how I got there. Somehow I started at one point and ended at another point the entire time replaying all of the words. All the what ifs. All the if onlys. I should have saids. It didn't even matter that I no longer worked for that same organization. I didn't even live in the same country anymore. But I would show him. Oh, revenge fantasies. They feel so good in the moment, don't they? But they leave us with nothing on the inside. More anger, more twisted narrative that somehow makes us even more justified for all of the hurt that we feel. How many wasted hours replaying old pain? How many relationships poisoned because we brought other people into old wounds? How many lost opportunities because we were stuck in unforgiveness? Unless we think it's only like mental, emotional, relational, studies have shown that unforgiveness often leaves us in this state of like chronic anger. And, and it keeps us in this like fight or flight place, which changes our heart rate. It, it changes our blood pressure. It changes our immune responses. And, it, and, and over time, it can in turn increase our risk of depression, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and a laundry list of other things that come as a result of sitting in chronic anger. Science is literally evidencing that unforgiveness is killing us. Here's the thing. Those same studies are showing that the act of forgiveness, it literally lowers the risk of heart attacks. It lowers and improves cholesterol. How does that work? You know, it, it, it restores healthy sleep patterns. It reduces pain. It reduces blood pressure. It reduces anxiety and depression. All of these benefits. And they only increase the older you get. I mean, it sounds a bit like a miracle drug. Forgiveness, the new miracle drug. With, you know, then the person says a bunch of really fast things that you can't understand, right? You know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because what it really sounds like is like the maker of this contraption that we call the human body, he knows a thing or two about how it works. And he knows what it means to give us real life when we step into it correctly. So with all of that in mind, let's take a look at this text that starts with one of Jesus's most aggressive judgment statements in all of the gospels. Luke 17, verse one, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Now, the millstone that they would have been talking about was like this large stone disc, and it was used for like grinding grain. And they came in all sorts of sizes, but, but honestly, even the small ones are ridiculously heavy. The point here is clear. Causing a little one to stumble on purpose is really, really, really bad. Like 
It would be better to die a horrible death than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Welcome to church. A little bit of light teaching today. Thank you, Jesus. Now, there are a couple theories about who the little ones are that Jesus is referring to. There's some school of thought that think that this is literally just like new believers, young believers that are kind of just getting started in their faith. But more theologians actually think Jesus is just in a general way referring to believers, to his, to his family, to, to the father's kids. These, these are the young ones that Jesus is referring to. Jesus is simply saying, like, don't cause believers to stumble on purpose. Watch yourself, Jesus says. And he emphasizes that this is something that you need to be attentive to. Like, pay attention. Don't do this. The thing is, remember who he's talking to. Who, who's he talking to right now? The disciples. It's crazy. So it kind of begs the question, like, why would one believer want to intentionally cause another believer to stumble? Like, why would one want to do that? Which is the tee up for the next part of verse three. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. You want to know what causes a little one to sin against another little one? Sin. Sin that goes unforgiven. Sin that finds its way down into a relationship and fractures it and rips it apart at the seams. That's what it means. And so we come to one of the more difficult teachings of Jesus. Radical forgiveness in the face of repeated sin. Fortunately, Jesus is a bit of an expert on this topic. He forgives our sin every day. Now, I know we tend to camp out on the second part of this verse, but, and we are going to get there, but, but there's this really, really important idea that Jesus teased this whole thing up on that we sometimes, like, we tend to jump right over. It's like we, we see that little semicolon and we jump over it really quickly, and we miss the foundation that Jesus lays in the first place that helps us understand the second part of the text. Jesus says, if your fellow follower of Jesus, brother or sister in Christ, sins against you, rebuke them. The word here in the Greek is epitomao. And it's the same word used that Jesus uses when, he, when he's like rebuking the demons or when he rebukes the storm or when he rebukes his disciples, especially Peter. Culturally, it's very similar to the way that we use the word rebuke. It's very similar. It's a calling out. Sure, in love, these are the context of this passage. Again, our followers of Jesus, this is family, right? It's, it's in love, but it's still a confrontation, now, the difficulty here, of course, is that we, as a culture, have gotten so bad at doing confrontation. We, we tend to really get wound up at each other. 
And we have so many ways of doing it now. It's not even just like face-to-face. We've got digital ways and we've got like passive-aggressive ways and why aren't they texting me back kind of ways. And we've got so many ways. We've actually turned bad confrontation into an art form in the 21st century. Like gutters on a bowling lane, we, we tend to fall into one or two major traps pretty quickly. Fight which is like, get defensive, go after that laundry list of things that we've been holding on to, let them have it. Sometimes saying or posting things that we don't even really believe, but just because we're so mad. Or flight, shut down, pull away, ghost, cancel, quietly unfriend, or start attending a different gym or church. Fight or flight. These two gutters on either side of the bowling lane, they, they, they're where we tend to veer to. Yeah, sure, there's a path in front of us. Jesus wants us to seek the center path, but we just have this tendency to go one way or the other. How can I hurt them back? How can I avoid all pain? These are our two Ways. Now, there are some hybrids, of course. There, there is that, there's that person that pulls away, but then goes and like, puts all their anger on somebody else. Or there's like triangulation. Anybody experienced triangulation before? Or slander? But for the most part, these two gutters represent our two traps, the things that we fall into. And what I'd like to suggest, and what I think Jesus is calling us to in this line before he tees up forgiveness, is that there is a better way to think about confrontation and conflict. That, in fact, conflict, when done correctly, has the power to create, not just destroy. If we're willing to slide our pride to the side and and keep this undivided heart that Jesus is calling us to with our eyes fixed on him, conflict can even become a friend. Sound impossible? I mean, in the last number of years, that sounds almost impossible. That sounds like something that God would have to do, like moving a mulberry tree into the ocean. Now, just sticking with the analogy, the bowling alley analogy for a moment. I, and by the way, I hate bowling. Any, like, any other haters out there? I, I just, I'm not a bowling, yeah. My wife loves bowling. It's one of those few places that we just, I just send her off to bowling club with her little, okay. No, she doesn't go to bowling club. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Anyways, um, I'm, I'm really, really bad at bowling. I'll just say that out loud, okay? But one, one of the times when my kids were little, we took him to the bowling alley and we got those like automatic bumpers put up. Anybody see the automatic bumpers? I mean, that's how bowling should be anyways. I mean, you're going to go have fun, right? Just roll them all down the aisle and you're never going in the gutters, right? Well, I, I want to, let's stick with this analogy, Tim. Stick with the analogy, stick with the analogy. Okay, uh, let's think about those bumpers. Helping us, protecting us even from flight or fight. I think we could gain so much ground in doing conflict well if we simply applied two bumpers, two protections. Our bumper for fight would be goodwill. Goodwill, I I know, it's kind of an old-fashioned idea. But what would it look like to just believe the best of the person in front of you despite their flaws? 
I mean, I know it's a crazy idea, super old-fashioned, but what would it look like to just believe the best? What would it look like to not compare that person's worst day to your best day and then stick a finger at them? What would, it, what would it look like to view them how the Father views them? Forgiven, redeemed by Jesus on their own journey. Remember, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. How much healthier would our conflicts be if we simply believed that Jesus was standing right there beside us with one of his scarred hands on their shoulder and his other hand on ours? What if we fought for clarity together instead of against each other? You know, Paul, he kind of would press into this idea later in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 3 says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. I mean, Paul is, he's pressing into life in Jesus. What does it mean to become more like him? And he calls us to a life that intentionally puts the interests of the person in front of us before our own. So countercultural. I mean, if you let that idea sink into your mind, think about how countercultural that is, how like un-American that is. I'm gonna set the interests of the other over myself. The Bible tells us that so much of our conflict is simply about us not getting what we want. But what if what we wanted was Jesus? Like his will, his purposes. What if we lived undivided? I mean, I wonder how much of the heat would go out of our conflicts if our eyes were fixed on Jesus and not what's wrong with the person that's in front of us. I think that could be a word for some of the married couples out there in this room and maybe a couple of roommates as well. What would it look like if we just looked at the person in front of us and instead of seeing the wrong in them, we saw Jesus? Okay, if the bumper for fight is goodwill, then the bumper for flight is courage. And as difficult as this one is, I think courage has actually become harder. It's just too easy nowadays to hide behind our computers and our phones. What would it look like to have courage in our conflicts? If conflict truly has the ability to create, not just destroy, then it's only as we courageously struggle forward as we struggle towards clarity, that we will get reconciliation and ultimately creation. But this takes work. It takes effort and it involves staying in the relationship, not running. It means that we, as followers of Jesus, we have to hold on to grace and then we have to hold on to expectation believing that God has something more for us as we open up ourselves to be formed more into his image. Remember, it says all of us are on our way to becoming more like Jesus, right? I mean, that's the beauty of Jesus. He, he meets us where we're at in our sin and in our brokenness, but he loves us so much. He's just like, I'm not gonna leave you there. 
That's this way. This is where we're going. The entire weight of what Jesus says next, all the words that he's about to say, they rest on this idea of committed relationship. That we are committed to being a King Jesus family. Goodness, how many times did Jesus like have to put up with his own disciples, men and women he had chosen, right? How many times did he wonder to himself, like I left glory for this, right? I mean, there's even that one little moment after the transfiguration, if you guys remember, like Jesus comes down after like having been like lifted up like, the, like a holy light bulb, like he's just, he's in his glory, and he comes out after the moment, he's probably, his heart's so full, he's talking with Moses and Elijah, he's having this incredible spiritual moment. He comes off the moment, and his, or comes off the mountain, and his disciples are doing something wrong, and these ones are arguing, and nobody can figure things out, and he's just like, how much longer am I going to have to put up with you? And then literally, that leaks out of his mouth. But Jesus never gives up. He never gives up on them and he never gives up on us. And he is our model. Remember, the one we're trying to become like. Jesus exemplifies for us what it looks like to stay in relationship in the midst of conflict, to see the conflict through to the other side, to experience transformation and to experience the power of resurrection in relationship. Jesus continues telling us that if our brother or sister sins against us, we should rebuke them. Have the conflict, have the confrontation in goodwill and with courage. And if they repent, forgive them. Full stop. And if they do it again, you confront them again. And if they repent, you forgive them again and again and again. And Jesus uses the emphatic you must forgive them. This is so important to Jesus. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not talking about intentionally putting yourself in harm's way. He's, he's not talking about being stuck in, a, in an abusive set of circumstances where you just, you just, you know, you just hope that they're going to get better. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, this is a brother and sister in Jesus and a conflict that should be dealt with. It's assumed. And Jesus is likely using some hyperbole for effect, but the point is clear. Forgiveness is not optional. And the deeper the wound, the more difficult the task. We've talked about forgiveness before at AJC. In fact, we've had a couple sermons over the course of this series on this topic. And we've, we talked about the fact that how it's, it's more than just an apology. Forgiveness is more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's bigger than that. It, it involves repentance. It involves turning. We've also talked about how it doesn't make the wrong okay. When you forgive somebody, it doesn't make what they did okay, but it does give you freedom. It controls the one variable that you actually have control over. We've talked about how, how forgiveness is grace. It's a gift, it's free, but trust is earned and that's okay. And there may be relational damages that, that take years to rebuild trust but forgiveness is grace. 
And we've talked about how, how being forgiven by Jesus ourselves, it's the foundation of all forgiveness that goes from us. You think about that parable about, about the steward who, who owes the king like a gazillion dollars. And the king's like, okay, you're never gonna repay me, so I forgive your debt. Then he goes out the door and he like chokes the person that owes him like a hundred bucks. He's like, how dare you give me my money back? And the king hears about it and is like, mm-mm. No, I forgave you all of that debt. You can forgive your brother. Literally, that parable is about this. All of our forgiveness is the starting point. It's the foundation of the forgiveness that we extend to others. And we've talked about also how forgiveness is the path to freedom. Our freedom not just the other person's. But as we processed as a teaching team, kind of like, okay, what, what could we do? How could we do this differently to move this from an idea, from like from our mind to our heart? We kind of, we started wrestling over one of the stories that came up was a story uh, from Corey Ten Boom. Um, and honestly, it's a bit longer than we would normally tell a story. So I'm going to tell you right now, go ahead and like set your stuff aside for a second, get comfortable. I'm going to have Shelby kind of tell us the story, but not too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable. And I want to invite you to just listen to the words of Corey Ten Boone and her story as she tells it. It was a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed out land and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence and silence collected their wraps and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It all came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now, he was in front of me, hand thrust out. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. 
And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a garden there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness, though, remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And as I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, I considered. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth started to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then in that moment. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. I remember sitting in that driveway, gripping the steering wheel like it was a person's throat. I remember my heart 
racing, my mind spinning with old memories, some of them that weren't even accurate. And into that, into that anxiousness, into that anger, into that rage came this still small voice. I thought you'd let that go. I thought you'd forgiven them. I thought I had as well. And then Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, extended the invitation to me again to forgive my brother with all of my heart. I love Corey Tinboon's words. To forgive my brother with all of my heart, to release the pain, to release my reputation, to release the outcomes, all of it into my Father's hands, to be free, really free. I remember sobbing and laughing. It was definitely one of those like moments where I looked really weird in my car. And I sat there alone in the driveway, but my hands were no longer clenched on the wheel because I had given it to Jesus. Today, I just have like one challenge and one call for us to sit in. The challenge is this. What is the one conflict in your life that God is calling you to raise the bumpers on? This conflict that you've got, maybe with a brother and sister, maybe with somebody in this room, and God is saying it is time to put the bumpers up, to bring goodwill and courage into the equation, to turn this conflict into creation, into redemption. Honestly, family, I've gotten really tired of just playing de defense when it comes to forgiveness. Just dealing with the consequences of our unforgiveness instead of going on the offense and reclaiming the ability to do conflict well. We should be able to do this better than anybody. The spirit of God lives inside of us. It's just like what Greg was saying, or that love should be surging through us. It's the thing that unites us. And yes, we're gonna hurt each other. We're broken. But what would it look like for us to lead the way for the rest of humanity? To be the ones that aren't afraid of conflict anymore. And then we don't have to flip out in a rage. We can simply do the thing that God has called us to, create reconciliation. To allow the pain to drive us to restoration. And all the muck and all the, the crud in our life, it gets used as manure to grow good things. Beautiful relationships. Relationships that are deeper than surface level, because th that's the problem. The problem is, is that if you're used to living in those gutters, you will never be able to have the kind of relationship that lets you get through conflict easily. God is calling his people, like, pave the way, friends. Like, let's show the world how it's done. 
Let's stop falling into the same traps. Let's believe Jesus for something better. Let's embrace healthy, life-giving conflict and create a better world, better homes, better workplaces, better schools, better versions of us. Instead of just dealing with the fallout of our conflicts. You know, I had somebody come up to me after the nine. So good. He was, he was tracking. He was taking notes. He's like, he's like, the problem is, is that we, we get stuck in the shame narrative, don't we? And shame takes us into one or two directions. Shame is one of those things that we either try to like pour out on somebody else. Like, how dare you? Or we internalize inside of us. And God's like, I dealt with shame. Like it's gone. Like it's, it's the thing that's in the ocean. Move past it. Move through it. Another question somebody asked me is, well, yeah, but what about when people don't repent? What about that brother or sister that just won't repent? You can only control the thing that you can control. What's your part in it? How can you claim freedom? Corey's got this... She also does this whole conversation about like a bell. Like when we let go of the bell, of dinging that bell, of pulling down that cord of like, I'm just so angry. I'm just, I'm going to hold this again. When we finally let go of it, it's still going to ring a little. There's some momentum. It takes some time for that thing to slow down. You're going to hear some of that. But in the end, we can only control our own hands, the ones that we give to Jesus. And that's why it's so difficult. That's why the disciples said, whoa, Lord, increase our faith. Because the thing that you're asking us to do, it's like, it's like bigger than just us. And that's the beautiful image that's of Corey Timboon, just like, I, all I had was enough to get my wooden hand up. But that was faith. That was a moment, a step of faith. And what did the Holy Spirit do in that moment? Flood her with life. And I think that's the invitation. The invitation for all of us, even now, what's the little step of faith that God's calling us to? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.